Hi, I'm Bob Fisher, guest hosting for Dave Gilmore, and this is Design Intelligence. You'd be hard-pressed to find an architect or design professional who believes their clients understand and will pay for the true value of design. As part of our new series called Designing Value, we'll be talking to leading thinkers about how we define and communicate the value of design to provide actionable insights to apply in practice. Our first guest of the series is Marilyn Modinger. Marilyn is the founder of Runcible Studios, whose mission is to bring rigor, delight, and creativity to every design project. On this edition of This is Design Intelligence, she shares what she thinks is the biggest value that designers bring to projects, the importance of articulating the difference between design and design services to the client, and where she thinks architects are missing major opportunities for compensation. Welcome to this edition of This is Design Intelligence, conversations with leadership voices in the built environment. Well, today on This is Design Intelligence, as the first episode in our Designing Value series, we are lucky enough to have Marilyn Modinger, the founding principal of Runcible Studios with us. Marilyn, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here today. Well, we're excited that you're here with us, too. Um, What we're doing in this whole series is we are talking to a variety of different people um, who are in architecture and design practice or have some perspective on the way that architecture and design creates value. And we're going to be talking about ideas of value that range from the big picture and conceptual all the way on down to how one talks about design value in professional practice. So one of the things I'd like to do to start out with is to sort of establish the perspective that you have and where your point of view comes from. So tell us a bit about your backstory and how you came to be the founding principal of Runcible Studios. Sure. Well, uh, so my background, I grew up on a farm. I feel like that's important to start with. And I had never met an architect, didn't even really know what an architect did. Um, but luckily stumbled into architecture school for undergrad. So I went to University of Virginia for undergrad for architecture. Um, and while there, got involved in a project called EcoMod, which was focused on designing and building low-income housing, affordable housing uh, that was modular. So we designed it and we built it. Uh, the cool part about that is that I realized that I wanted to learn how to build and I wanted to learn how to build in the field. So after that, I went into construction and I started off as a laborer, worked my way up to estimator, assistant project manager, project manager, working for a general contractor. So I did that for three or four years after undergrad. Uh, Then I went back to get my master's and in architecture uh, and then moved to Boston and started working for a firm in Boston. Did that for a few years, then actually transitioned to full-time academic work. I was an administrator at a design school, Boston Architectural College, and I ran all of the design build projects that were that we uh, paired groups of students with local nonprofits to do design build projects. We, under my watch, we did about sixty projects, but it was clear to me that I really wanted to be an architect and not just teach architects, although I love that too. So I continued teaching, but then I uh, left full-time academic work to start my practice. So that was in 2013. So that's a lot of different, you know, pardon the cliche, that's a lot of different shoes to wear, right? A lot of different yes. perspectives. <laughs> um, you know, I think it's unique enough to have someone who who has hands-on building experience 
who chooses a design path. What was it that had you moving from one of these roles to the other? Was it just opportunities that came up or was there some kind of intention or plan behind all of it? There was no intention and plan. And when I talk to students who are contemplating their next move or mentees that I have or whatever, I'm very clear that there was not a grand plan. I just called now looking back, I call it following my curiosity, just whatever was interesting to me, whatever I wanted to learn more about, however I thought I could learn it best, I wanted to put myself in that place. So it often meant making decisions like going into contracting that at the time felt like a step backwards. But now I look at it and realize how far ahead that put me in terms of the work I've been able to do in the last 10 years in practice. Yeah, it was definitely not definitely not planned. <laughs> yeah. Well, so from each of those different perspectives, you must have had very different views of what the value of design was or like what design could do. Absolutely. So th- thinking about, you know, moving from construction, through academia, through academic uh, training in architecture and professional practice in architecture and being a, a studio owner. Tell me about where you've landed in terms of just defining the value of design. How do you think about it? So with all of those different hats I've worn or shoes I've worn, as you put it, it's just become clearer and clearer and clearer to me that the, that how valuable design actually is. When I was building when I was a contractor and I was building from other people's drawings, I learned so much about what goes into a design or set of drawings or design intent that actually makes it easier to build or worth building or a quality build. And those are things I would not have known had I not built from other people's drawings before I made my own drawings. One thing that has become clear to me as well, working on all those different various roles, is that the value of design is largely influenced, of course, by who's asking. So the value that a developer puts on design or the value that an occupant puts on a design, or maybe it's a tenant or an owner of a house, or the value that the architect puts on design or the jurisdiction, the city, all of these folks value design fairly highly. But in what ways and to what end is is what's interesting. Contractors value design as well, very much so. But exactly how and what about that value is the most important thing. That's what's that's what's different about it. Yeah, it's sort of the uh, beauty is in the eye of the beholder type thing. Yes. Um, so what types of, as you think about the different, groups or different people or different roles that can look at design or participate in design in some way, what types of value does design create for each of these constituents or each of these stakeholders? Well, I'll start with the people who I think matter most, who are the people who occupy buildings, (laughs) whether it's a home or a school or a hospital or the people who occupy the buildings, I think have that that's where the value of design has means the most. Mm -hmm. And for folks who are using buildings, you know, they have to be functional, they have to be usable, they have to be durable, they have to make you want to be in them. So something I say to my students a lot is, yeah, but is it a good space? Is it a good room? Like, what does that even mean? Is it somewhere you want to be again? Is that somewhere that you feel excited to to go and to occupy? And so that I, I think that as a design professional and a former building professional, 
that that's what matters to me the most is mm-hmm. what is that what is the person who's actually going to be in there mm-hmm. um and it's it's also not just occupants it's people who maintain buildings as well the vast majority of the building's life is not while it's under construction or in design but when it's in service when it's being used so and the people who use it are not just the people who are sort of coming and going you know if it's a school like just students but it's also teachers or it's also people who maintain the building or um, it's guests who come to use the building. So those folks are going to have a pretty different view of what's valuable about it than uh, even than each other. So someone who's maintaining a building is going to value things like, okay, so that light bulb is somewhere where is not really difficult to change, right? Or it's 20 feet up in the air and it's in a really difficult location and someone didn't think about my life when I have to go change that light bulb or whatever the case may be. And that's where good design, even on a tiny scale, matters it matters to the the people who are maintaining the building because if it's not easy to maintain it won't be maintained and that's a problem so as a designer how do you how do you balance all of the needs of these different types of users um, and other people who have a stake uh, in the design of a building and a space well it's tough the answer to that is actually one of the biggest value values that i think good architects bring to the world and to projects which is that we are professional decision-maker helpers. And I haven't come up with a better way of saying that yet. But what we do is we help owners or whoever hires us to weigh all of these things because ultimately it isn't our decision. It's the owner's decision, how they choose to to weigh all these things and, and which which direction to go. And our job is to help guide them through that and to help them weigh the options and help them think through all of this stuff in a way that isn't so overwhelming that they just lock down and say, fine, I'll just do the easiest thing or fine, I'll just do the cheapest thing or whatever. So you help them understand, okay, well, let's look at this through the lens of longevity or let's look at this through the lens of your everyday life in this building or whatever. And a good architect is able to help people make decisions. So it's it's not just that I'm sitting here deciding for the owner like you're asking, how, how do we weigh all these things? Well, ultimately, my job is actually to usher an owner through figuring out how to weigh all those things and balance all those things. And that's a pretty, pretty big value we don't often talk about is the role of the architect. Well, it's first of all, I haven't heard that many architects and designers be that explicit about their role in helping decisions to be made or even defining their role as as being a what did you call it a decision maker helper yes <laughs> um which is <laughs> that'll go on some business cards um <laughs> you know one of the things i'm wondering is do do clients understand how important it is that they make decisions what the stakes of those decisions are and how helpful or valuable it is for you to be guiding them through that process no So most people are uh, not professional clients. Um, Some people are. Um, Institutions who build buildings all the time or developers or whatever are what I sort of call professional clients. They are professional um, users of, of design services. And so they're more used to it. But someone who, like a nonprofit who's building their their headquarters or a person doing their own home or something like that, most clients are not super educated as to actually what the process entails. Like forget 
what an architect does even, just what the process is and how just how many decisions they're going to be expected to make. And I've learned over the years to preempt, to notice, to keep my finger on the pulse of decision fatigue in my clients and see when it's happening. Part of my job is to learn my clients such that I understand which decisions they really, really want to dig into and really care about and which decisions they just want me to handle and which decisions that they would rather punt on, but that I really need them to come to the table and think about and and dig into with me. And that is not something that, you know, if you watch on, you know, TV or whatever, and you see a home renovation show, everything's done in 27 minutes with like one minor problem that gets solved after the commercial break. That is absolutely not how design goes or how construction goes. There's so many zillions of decisions. And my job is helping them filter all those things and trying to explain at the outset when I'm trying to <laughs> win the job or or even just educate them about what architectural services are or what a construction project entails. I'm also trying to help them understand, like, here's what you're in for, whether you work with me or whoever, here's what you're in for. Like, this is, these are really intense processes. So part of the process, I would think, is educating clients. And I know that you have a a fair number of residential clients, right? Yeah. Um, So whether it's, you know, residential clients or other types of clients who are not professional clients or not repeat clients, I imagine that you are having to sort of tell them, you know, give them an idea of what the criteria are to evaluate architectural services as well as evaluate the architectural services. You know what I mean? That's it's like right. you're 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 kind of having to educate them as to the world that they're going to be expected to occupy or play a role right. in. Right. And it's so early in the process that they don't have any idea what they're in for. Mm-hmm. And there's plenty of situations that they might find themselves in where someone isn't being truthful or, you know, sort of upfront about how much there is to, you know, the old low ball to get in the door. And then once you start working together, say, well, actually, this is how much it's going to cost, or this is how much hassle it's going to be, or whatever the case may be. I lose a lot of work because I am really honest about what the process entails. And honestly, All I want when I'm talking to someone about whether we're going to work together is I just want them to have the best solution for their project and for themselves. So if if that means that I've spent some time and we end up not working together, it's fine. What matters to me is that they have, that they're being realistic Mm -hmm. about what, what's coming so that they can be prepared. And so, and, and honestly, like those sort of professional clients or, you know, there's plenty of people, business owners, or think about a restaurant owner who mm-hmm. needs to build out their restaurant. I mean, there's tons and tons and tons of people who have no idea. And by the way, it's not their full-time job. Their full-time job is something else. <laughs> so I try to tell people like, guess what? You have a full-time job and a family and everything else. And you want to take on this whole other thing, or you think you can do it without an architect. Well, okay, but somebody's going to have to make all those decisions and do all that stuff. If it's not you, then you hire an architect. If it's not the architect, it's going to be the contractor. And the contractor is not trained or qualified to make all those decisions with you. Somebody has to do the work. The work exists, whether or not I'm there or an architect is there or not. And that often helps people understand like, oh, geez, so I'm going to be spending the next six months of my life Googling things every night and trying to learn all this stuff. I'm like, yeah, or you can hire someone who has 20 years experience and can walk you through. Sure. So in your in your experience in professional practice, 
in addition to having to educate people about the process and educate people about what their, you know, as clients, what their role will be in the process, how else do you articulate the value of design to clients? So I try to understand what they value, because if I'm trying to articulate the value of design sort of in a vacuum or just sort of in a, in a as a platonic ideal, that that's not that may not relate to them. So I try to figure out what they value. So for example, if I'm talking with a developer who's, who values someone who's going to be really responsive and get the project done as quickly as possible and you know has time in their schedule to, to be very responsive, then great, let's, let's talk about that and let's talk about how to make that happen and whether we're the right fit for that. If I'm talking to a homeowner and what they really value is someone who's going to really walk them through every single finish and go to all the showrooms with them and hold their hand and walk through all of it because they really want that experience, then I would talk about my value in that way. If a client says, you know, what I really value is X and Y and Z, that is something that I can't provide, you know, then I will tell them and say, that's awesome that you really highly value that. That's not something that I'm able to provide, but there are other professionals who can. So I try to I try to understand what they value. What can be awkward is if what they value is something that isn't possible or doesn't really make sense in light of the design process. And that can that's where the education part comes back in, where I, I'm saying, all right, well, there's there's sort of a conflation here of the value of design and the value of design services. Those are two. Uh related but different things. So it's an interesting point that there's uh, there's a difference between design and design services. So how do you get people to understand or get clients to come to understand the difference between those two things and what value is in each? Yeah, I mean, I think partially some of these things are a little bit esoteric maybe for clients to even understand. Like, does it matter that they understand the distinction? I don't know. But what is important, I think, in every case is for people to understand what they're purchasing when they're purchasing something. And clients are purchasing design services. They're not purchasing design. They're not purchasing drawings. They're not purchasing a design of a house. They're purchasing my services, professional services in a design capacity. And that is very difficult sometimes for clients to understand. Design implies a product. Design services is about providing a service in service of creating that product, which is the house, but it's the contractor who provides the product. We don't. The product is not the drawings. The product is the house or the building. So that can sometimes, and that distinction also is cloudy for for clients because a lot of times they don't know the, the line between contractor and architect, which by the way, is a sort of a modern invention. So when I'm trying to explain like, what do I actually do? I have to also put it in terms of, well, this is, these are the things that I don't do. I don't manage construction. You know, that's not what architects do. That's not part of design services, but that's part of the product of the design services. And that's where the design is manifest. So it is hard to articulate that to clients. You know, you can see their gla- eyes glazing over a little bit, <laughs> like trying to create these distinctions. But it is helpful. I usually just try to say, well, I'm providing the service. The contractor is providing the product. So that can help explain it a little more clearly. Tell me about, in your experience, 
What makes a good client and what makes a not so good client? Well, first of all, I just have to say I've been blessed with so many amazing clients. I just, just even taking a moment to step back and say uh, how fortunate I feel to have had so many wonderful clients. So that's, I'll take that. That's the easy one first. Um, What makes a good client is someone who, uh, (laughs) the first thing that springs to mind is decisive. So someone who actually uh, comes ready to make decisions and then sticks with them. That being said, and that's for a house, that's for a giant project, that's for developers, that's for homeowners, that's for everything. Being decisive is really, really helpful. That also implies like a a, a sort of a readiness to do the project. Sometimes, uh, you know, we might refer to tire kickers or people who are just not serious about actually engaging in a project. That being said, the thing about decisiveness that can be, that I also like to push back in, in the opposite direction is that I want my clients to value my time and my efforts while also understanding that I'm there to hopefully make them wildly happy with the outcome of what's here, of what what we're doing. So a good client will be like, ah, you know, I really actually, they're thinking in their mind, they're like, ah, I know how hard Marilyn's working, there's deadlines, whatever, but I actually am not that excited about how this particular part of the project is turning out. I I really, but I don't want to say anything because I I don't want to like upset the whole, a good client will bring that to me and a good architect will say in response, absolutely. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes. I want you to, I want you to tell me when you're not excited about something and I want to make that happen. A good client doesn't wait until the day before the drawings are due to say that. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And then good clients um, are collaborative. They pay on time. They are interested in design and interested in creating something that isn't just the same old thing that's done all the time. They have constraints. I think good clients have constraints. All my clients have a budget and we take it very seriously. Good clients have ideas and thoughts and dreams and all that kind of stuff. And they don't necessarily know how to get there. And we partner together to get them to that point to something that neither one of us could have gotten on our own. Yeah, I need my clients to to push back on me and to to push me forward and and there's a give and take and that's what that's what a great client does is it's a collaboration. So obviously a not great client is the opposite of all that stuff. <laughs> right. So a not great client is someone who who's constantly seeing you as the enemy. I've had situations where clients will you know, if I say, well, I I hear you that you want to have this stair that has no handrail, but according to code, we can't do that. Mm-hmm. And then the client sees me as sort of the enemy of their vision or the enemy of, of them doing what they want. And instead, what I'd rather say is, if your goal is to have a handrail that disappears let us put our heads down and think of a really creative, beautiful design solution that meets code and also allows you to achieve the aesthetic or functional goals that you're hoping to achieve. And a good client says, yeah, that sounds great. And a bad client starts to view us with suspicion that we're always telling them no, or that, you know, we're not, we're not putting their needs first because as architects, we actually have to balance not just the person who hires us, but we have to balance our 
our duties to the state, health, safety, welfare, and all that kind of stuff that go beyond just the individual client who hired us. Well, and maybe those those kind of things help the client in ways the client doesn't necessarily know or appreciate. That's right. Yeah, I've had many situations where the client comes back and says, you know, we've been living here or we moved in a year ago and now I understand this thing. It just fits. This just works. I can just do this thing. I'm like, I know, <laughs> I know. There's a million things that we do like that, that maybe we don't even get to explicitly explain, but that just work, that are just good. And that's very exciting when we get to hear about that later. (laughs) So let's zoom back for a minute and start to look at the architecture and design industry more broadly. Um, As an educator, what grade would you give the architecture and design industry in both communicating value, articulating value of what they do, and then capturing it, maybe capturing it in the way of uh, getting paid what you're worth. Maybe like a D. <laughs> so <laughs> so there's room failing. for improvement. <laughs> there's room for improvement. So we're not failing. The first part that you said about how we do in terms of articulating our value, this one I find very tricky because part of me feels that It's not my responsibility. I'm running a business and I'm trying to actually be an architect and run a business and have a staff and keep projects going, keep everyone employed. You're telling me I also have to explain what I do. So I feel that that putting that onto practitioners is frustrating from the perspective of a practitioner, because if if there were other ways that our profession were understood and valued, but that I didn't have to explain it every time, that would be very helpful to me. So is that, who in the industry is in charge of that? Is that practitioners who have to explain every time we run into someone what we do and why it's valuable? Well, I would argue that, you know, it can't just be on practitioners' shoulders. So you ask the question about industry, which would include more than just practitioners, And I think we have a lot of room for improvement there. It just often falls on the shoulders of the practitioner because of part two of your question, which is about how are we capturing that value? Well, this goes into a whole other thing that I think about architecture profession, which is that we are not all that good at business as a general rule, (laughs) as a profession. And that has history in all kinds of things, cultural history in our profession. But it's also frustrating because it comes from a really good place of architects wanting to solve things for everybody and being willing to stay up all night because they just really want to get the design right for their client the next day. And instead of saying, well, I said I would do three iterations for X dollars. I've done three iterations for X dollars. If you would like three more, it will cost you another X dollars. Architects are not generally good at that in my experience. And that, like I said, I think there's all sorts of reasons for that. But I also think that generally architects would better serve the profession if they were better business people. So in in what ways would they need to improve? Well, they need to ask for fees that are commensurate with the work that they're doing. So there's two parts of that in my view. One part is the part that we all sort of know, right? Like I'm doing a building and I'm providing design services. And as part of that, the bulk of that is making these drawings and providing CA services. And that's going to take about this much time and this much effort for my staff. So I'm going to charge X dollars. 
or it's, you know, percentage based, which is fairly common to base it on percentage of the cost of construction or whatever. So, and that's our compensation. That is missing a huge, huge thing that architects do for their clients, a massive value, which is that with our stamp, we are magically taking the liability off the shoulders of the owner and taking it on our shoulders. So there's two things happening. I am doing a job, aka making drawings, and I am also shouldering liability and risk on behalf of my client. We get compensated for part one and not for part two. And that architects need to remember what they're doing. What does that stamp actually mean? (laughs) And what are the financial implications and the risk of, of actually of doing that, of doing what we do? People are willing to pay lawyers because they understand that the lawyer is helping mitigate their risk. Well, I don't think that people think architects, they think of it as, well, I just need the drawings. They aren't realizing that what the stamp actually means and does and what that service is that they're providing. And I'm not sure that architects honestly really understand it that well. I certainly didn't understand it till I started working. And when I got my stamp and I talked to my lawyer and he said, okay, now we need to sit down and talk about what this actually means. I was like, whoa, mind blowing. <laughs> so if I say to a developer, yeah, yeah. So you understand that I'm making these drawings and providing design services. We all understand that there's value, whatever. Okay. What if I also said that for the next seven years, <laughs> I can get named in a suit, you know, because something happens in this building and I have to carry insurance and I have to do all this stuff. What is that value to you? What is that? What, how do you value that? Yeah, it's a great question. Well, it sounds like one of the ways that the architecture and design industry could improve its, uh, let's just say, suboptimal grade in this area is to have a better understanding of all of these elements of design or you know, parts of the designer's experience and business that you never learn about in school. What else can the industry do to improve that grade? Make sure that in school we're instilling values around, you know, just as I said earlier about, okay, I do three iterations and I charge X dollars as a firm owner. In the same way, when we're educating future architects, we can say, okay, for Friday, I need you to make me three iterations. And when the student shows up with three iterations, we're like, great. We don't say three, but secretly mean nine and penalize the student for not staying up all night because they didn't create nine instead of three. Like I asked for three, you did three, that's great. And talking to students, I often talk to my students about the sort of meta things that we're learning in school. One of the big ones being time management. So I remember I gave an assignment one time that was very controversial. I asked for a hundred models. I gave them an assignment on a Friday afternoon and I said, I want a hundred models by Monday. Just the absolute abject misery and gnashing of teeth and everyone flipping out. And I had neglected to explain clearly. I thought it would be clear just by virtue of the assignment, but it wasn't. So we had to pull back and I had to explain. If someone asks you for a hundred models in two days, are these models that should take two hours a piece? No. How can you make 10 models in an hour? Well, let's get some paper and crumple it up and let's get some, let's get some string and let's get some easy things that I can crank out 10 models in an hour, you know? There's this idea, this mismatch of effort and time and sort of a misjudging of time and effort 
that I think starts in school. And this idea of what is good enough. And I don't mean that as a cop out. I mean it as it's a life skill too. What is good enough? You know, that this fills the bill, it gets the job done, and it's good enough. Instead of perpetuating our sort of already natural tendencies towards perfectionism, there's some things that architects need to be perfect at, or else a building falls down or leaks or whatever. We we need to we need to be on more on the perfect side for that kind of stuff. But other things we don't have to be so perfect. And in school, I think, I think that's the place where we can start those conversations and then support that in the workplace and say, you know what, like in my practice, we're done at six o'clock. If I hear of anyone working nights or weekends or whatever, then that's a big problem. That's a big problem. And I, I, as the owner need to know about it so that I can fix it. So I think it's cultural in our, in our education system. So Marilyn, if you had kind of a magic wand scenario and you could fix any of the industry's problems relative to how it looks at value, how it defines value, how it explains or articulates value, and how it claims value, what would your advice be? Or what what change would you make with that magic wand? I think I would encourage anyone who couches value in terms of money, which is almost all of us in various ways as a business owner or as a worker because you're getting paid or as a developer who's trying to make money on a, on a building, that we have to understand where what, what we're putting into the calculation so that we're being realistic. I think, I think if there's one thing I, I would change, it would be that people would, would have a bit of a wider lens when they're understanding the, the word value that they were considering more things than just the three cells on a spreadsheet they're looking at. For example, people talk about upgrades in a building like better insulation or triple pane windows or whatever. And those things are always couched in terms of what is the return on investment? What is the payback? But no one ever says, what is the payback on that granite countertop? Or what is the payback on that beautiful tile? People want what they want and that's fine but i would wave my magic wand and have people both have a wider understanding of what they're actually factoring in to their value calculation and i would also ask that they're more consistent with how they apply the rules by which something is deemed valuable or not mm-hmm. and by people you mean clients i mean everybody I mean, everybody, because architects can sometimes get really trapped in like a, you have to do it this way. And we're not thinking carefully about what our clients value. If the client doesn't value that, what is our duty to like force them into something that they don't want? You know, I mean, sometimes, yeah, if it's code related, yeah, we have to like, sorry, handrails, we have to do that. But also there's a sense of that architects can be know-it-alls and they're not listening carefully to what their clients want and need. So I would say that's everybody. Well, maybe one day we'll find a way to uh, to actually have that magic wand and then we can fix all of this stuff. Sounds great. Well, Marilyn, I really appreciate you coming to spend some time with us and uh, best of luck with Runcible and with uh, educating more people about what value is in design and architecture. 
Well, thank you. I believe in this profession and I believe in making great buildings and I'm happy to have this chance to talk about it. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of This is Design Intelligence. The producer is Laura Spells. The sound engineer is Jared Knabel. This has been a DI Media Group production.